All right, well, welcome to Answer Anyone with Psy 10 Rivington. My name is Joel Fedekes, and of course, I am joined by one of the apologists who have had maybe the greatest impact uh, on my own apologetic, um, a man who, for many, needs no introduction. The I'm not going to say the awesome, because he wouldn't let me get away with that. Um, let's say this. The uh, the the man of God. Yeah, I don't like that either. You ever hear what Paul Washer says about that when they talk about great men of God? I, I think he says there's only weak servants of yes. a great God. Yes, amen. But I also, I didn't say the great man of God. That's right. Well, I, I just, so feel free to fill in your own adjectives. Uh, but um, I think I'm, the adjectives, adjectives that I use would be a lot like the adjectives that the atheists use towards me. So you probably amen. better not let me do that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing when you come face to face with a holy God, how it really puts your own so-called righteousness and, uh, uh, greatness in perspective. I just tell the, people that I'm. I tell people that I'm a tool, and that that you know, usually people on both sides can agree with that. Amen, amen, brother. So, uh, so Sai, first of all, as we record this, we are in the middle of, or may, may, hopefully, we're coming out of the Great Texas Deep Freeze. You're mm-hmm. down there in Texas. How you been doing down there, brother? Well, it has been very interesting because this type of weather is not even a hiccup in Canada. And of course, I'm from Canada mm-hmm. and I've been down here for a winter, but this is the first winter where things have really frozen. And for, for us, you know, like I think it got down to where I am right here, about a minus eight Celsius. And I think it was, um, I don't remember, it was like 14 or so Fahrenheit. But for us, that's, that's absolutely nothing. But here it's bedlam because uh, there was snow and ice and they don't clear the roads down here. Um, the place I'm staying, the the water line froze and broke off of that. So, thankfully, the the, the power was out for eight hours, and um, you know I was able to make some hookups with the generator so that the pastor that uh, I'm staying with uh, he had uh, central heat, so I was able to do that. And um, now I've temporarily hooked up to the water, but now so everything's back on in the city where I'm at. But uh, there's only 20 pounds water pressure, so and it's a boil water advisory, so it, it's incredible. I mean, we have hurricane season where uh, I think we evacuated three times last season. And now we get this uh, snow, snowmageddon and ice, and uh, things are just as crazy. Now, of course, I make light of it as a, as a Canadian, but people are dying from this. Right. And if I didn't have the resources to uh, get heat and electricity from this generator, then, you know, it would be dire straits for some people. So, I mean, I, I make light of it in, you know, with relation to what it's like in Canada. But then when we have a week of 90 degree Fahrenheit in Canada, I mean, we have weather warnings and people down in Texas would laugh at us for that reason. So, I mean, um, we make... You know, we make light of it, but of course, we don't make light of the ple- people that are, are really experiencing uh, hardship at this time. And, you know, we do pray for them. And, um, but, you know, we glorify God in this. The pastor that I'm uh, with, uh, Jonathan Murdoch, in his church down in Port Arthur here, he was supposed to go to a mission trip on a mission trip in uh, Mexico. And they're supposed to fly out of Houston to Dallas, and all the flights in Houston were canceled. So they started driving up to Dallas. And then halfway up to Dallas, they're driving, I think, 12 hours at 30 miles an hour. Halfway up to Dallas, they found out that all the flights out of Texas were canceled. So they had to cancel the mission trip, and, and he would just glorify in God the whole way. That's the beautiful thing about uh, trusting in God's sovereignty, that he works all things for the good of those who love him, even when things don't go well, and from our perspective. So he knows that uh, for whatever reason, that uh, trip was postponed now till April. And, um, you know, he was glorifying God, and it was just a, a beautiful thing to see that. And so we don't, you know, we thank God in and for all situations, knowing that he is sovereign. So um, stuff like this, you know, should not affect us negatively, although um, it, there, it is a struggle. There, there's still things going on that, have, that need to be repaired. I mean, we've got water lines shut off that have cracked, and uh, when things warm up a little bit more, we'll have to be repairing those. But um, it sure has been interesting being down here during the different weather situations that they face here. Yeah. And, you know, God knows how frail our hearts are and how feeble our hearts are. So scripture is rife with instructions to not lose hope, to be of good courage, you know, to persevere. We need those instructions. We need those those commands because the natural bent of our heart is not to persevere, not to take courage, not to, you know, uh, not to rejoice in all circumstances. And again, I say rejoice. And so, yeah, it's, that's a good word. It's a, it's a really good reminder, I think. 
I used to really uh, differentiate between joy and happiness. And I was asked this month to write an article for the Fight, Laugh, Feast magazine, and the theme is on laughter. And the pastor here, he, he had a, did a sermon once how joy and laughter were far more closely related than I had believed them to be. And I think I, I differentiated them because I don't consider myself a very happy person. But then when you see it through Scripture that, that happiness is so closely related with joy that my conclusion was that even if I don't believe they're identical because there are times in Scripture where people are clearly not happy, mm -hmm. I, I decided, oh, I saw, I think my conclusion from that investigation was that I need to be happier. I need to laugh more. And that's actually what I called my article, Laugh More. And uh, for the people who do end up reading that article, I included a joke in there that 90% of the people that I tell don't get. And that's why I included it, because it's funny when people just have that puzzled look on their face when I tell them that joke. So you'll have to pick up that magazine to get it. Okay. Okay. Well, I got the first issue at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference back in mm -hmm. October and really, really enjoyed it. So... Um, yeah, what, I, I, what I've discovered though is I'm not a writer, so they might not even include it. I don't know. They already sent it back once, you know, to to, to oh, really? spruce it up a bit, and then I sent it back. I haven't heard from them since, so I hope it ends up in the magazine. But if it doesn't, then you'll know why. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I I find myself, you know, I try not to get too into any one organization where that's like my only pipeline for, you know, uh, in, information or apologetics or news or things like that. But I do find myself really enjoying most of the stuff that comes out of the fight laugh feast sphere you know moscow idaho doug wilson fight laugh feast um all those guys and um and, and i w i will say i gave gabe wrench one of our think institute t-shirts and i have yet to see because gabe gabe wrench i mean you know gabe he's just a phenomenal guy and uh, i wanted him to have the shirt anyway because he he was just so gracious and helpful with us uh, when we went to the Fight Left East conference as vendors, as uh, exhibitors, you know, for representing the Think Institute. But I have yet to see him wearing it on an episode. So, um, Gabe, if you ever watch this, I'm watching, brother. I'm looking, I'm looking for that rep representation. Um, I think I have worn Fight Left Feast on, uh, on the Think podcast. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pining for that day. I'm pining he, for that day. He is indeed a great brother. I stayed there uh, about a year ago at his place, and I I left my uh, toiletry bag there, and he kept it for me for almost a year later that I went there. I was up um, visiting my friend Marcus and uh, David for Christmas, and uh, he invited you know a, a couple of straggler singles that don't um, have family to celebrate with. He invited us over for, on Christmas Day, so he's a dear brother. But as far as uh, representing the shirt brother, yes. That's what I'm talking about. All right. And you didn't you didn't ask me to do that, by the way. No, no, I and, didn't. And I, I would say that, you know, it's because I haven't been able to do the laundry in the two weeks because of the situation I'm here, so it's the only shirt I had left. Hey, hey, <laughs> no, praise I got the Lord. some more. I got more. I saved it for this occasion. Oh, praise God. But see, God does use all circumstances, all situations Amen. For, for good. And it, as far as the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network goes, I mean, you uh, clearly watch uh, Cross Politic. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is David Shannon, who uh, you know was one of the hosts of the show there, he directed my film, How to Answer the Fool. That's right. That's and right. David worked tirelessly on that film. I think the first scene that was shot to it being available on April 1st, I think it was like 12 weeks. And I mean, he just did amazing work on that. And I don't like watching myself on video, and I very rarely watch it. But when I have to go through it for research purposes, you know, to find some information from it, I just marvel at the work that David did, uh, the Chocolate Knox. I mean, he's just a wonderful director. I'm thankful that he is doing a lot more work. He's working for Founders. He did the um, By What Standard film, and he does a lot of um, a lot of the work for Founders. And uh, I'm just very thankful that I can call him a friend and uh, he does amazing work. And of course, I was staying with Marcus, and uh, Marcus was the director of photography, uh, director of photography for How to Answer the Fool, and he's also a dear brother. Okay, so I knew he was involved. I didn't know what what he had done, but Marcus, of course, I had him on uh, the, right. the Think Podcast. He's he's starting up his streaming service, Lure, Lore, mm -hmm. and um, really looking forward to that. There's just some incredible things happening right now uh, that you know that, that I'm excited about, but. But thank you for representing, brother. Well, the and, other documentary I did, by the way, is Debating Delahunty, and Marcus did all of that one. Oh, he did, did he really? Song, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed that one as well. And, um, you know, uh, I got to follow in your footsteps a little bit. And, and I think you should be okay with me saying that because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, so, but I got to, I got to do, let me put it this way. I got to participate in an activity that you have 
a lot of experience with. And that, of course, is open air preaching, street preaching, street evangelism. Mm-hmm. And I actually got to do that this past weekend. Yeah, that's cool. Actually, I read one of your praise reports. Actually, there's a video of your praise report, and I thought it was great. And I know that a lot of people attribute me doing to, to doing a lot of open-air preaching. And I have done a significant amount. I've done a number of East Coast tours. I've been, I think, to England twice doing open-air preaching and some stuff uh, in Canada as well. But there are people that are far more experienced than I am. But the problem is, because I have a film out there, often when I'm out open-air preaching, there's always somebody who pulls out a camera or pulls out a phone and you know, there's that three-minute clip of me. It goes on YouTube, so people think that I do a lot of it. When there's a lot of faithful brothers who never have somebody pull out their phone and, and post that video on right. YouTube. So I'm thankful to be able to have the experience. But um, like I said, there's a lot of people that are um, far more experienced at it than I am. Yeah, and one of those guys who has a long, storied history of open-air preaching <laughs> is Scott Smith. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got... I got to meet Scott. I didn't, I didn't, we, uh, the two of us didn't end up going out together. Um, he was working on a few things, but, um, and then he went out the last day, but that was the day that I was traveling back to Chicago. Um, but I got to meet him a little bit. Here's some of the, the war stories. And, um, you know, it was, it was just this incredible thing. I've, the, the most I've ever done was back in high school. I went on a missions trip where we went out to the Hopi Indian reservation and, um, and then while we were there, we went out there twice. While we were there, we went out street witnessing and we did sort of the survey approach. Hey, we'd like to, you know, we're out here on the street talking to people about God. And, um, but so I'm out there in, we went to Flagstaff and we went out to, to people on the street and, and did kind of the, the street witnessing thing and had some great conversations that way. But this was my first time. I mean, Cy, I, I got up on the stepladder. I had the, the speaker, you know, I had the, the over the ear headset mic and I preached the gospel and I had this really, it was a really humbling moment. So the first, the first night we went out, we were out there for about four hours and I could only preach for about 30 minutes and it was, it was cold. I mean, it wasn't Chicago cold. It wasn't Canada cold, but it was cold. It was New Orleans cold, colder than I was expecting. And I'm out there. And I, I'm preaching for about 30 minutes. And I'll tell you, the first minute of being there was complete silence. They just handed me the headset mic, set me up, put me up on the stool, and said, okay, have at it. And this, I, I, I've, I've preached, um, I can preach for hours in a church. I mean, I, I can preach for, for an hour. That's, you know, sometimes I think maybe the congregation wished I didn't preach that as long as I, as long as I can preach. But, um, I get up on that stepladder and I start going and I was like, I just, I ran out of steam. I mean, it is exhausting. You're preaching, you know, Jesus says, go out into the highways and byways and compel people to, to come in. But th- he doesn't tell you how exhausting that is. And I'm like pleading with people with the gospel, you know, I, re- I repeated Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I probably repeated that about a hundred times, ran out of things to say, ran out of uh, steam, and I had to get back down off the stepladder. And um, and then the next day, I, I there was a conference component to it as well. And the event is called Declaring Truth at Mardi Gras. And I um, I get up and I, I teach the next day. And I teach this lesson about how it's not our efforts, but God's gospel that saves. And it was, it was right out of Romans 1, 15 to 25. And of course, the heart of that passage is Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I preach that message. I teach that message. And then I go back to my room and I'm struck. I'm sitting there in my room struck by my total inadequacy to get out there and preach the gospel on the street. So you know what I did, brother, is I started looking at, um, I started looking up articles on how to street preach. And of course I came across one from Ray Comfort, who if, if uh, listeners, viewers, if you don't know who Ray Comfort is, one of the best known street preachers, he's an evangelist, he's out there. And I start reading advice from brother Ray Comfort and he's out there, he's talking about these different gimmicks that you can use to draw a crowd. And as I'm, uh, 
as I'm reading, I'm realizing, man, we didn't do any of these things. We didn't do any of these gimmicks. And should we be really doing this? Should we be, you know, having somebody dress up in a monkey suit or, or, you know, uh, having big discussion boards with questions on them and, and, and gimmicks. And I took this to brother Zoe white, who was organizing the event. And I go, brother Zoe, you know, I'm looking up how to street preach and I noticed we didn't do any of these gimmicks. Why, why aren't we trying to draw a crowd? And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, Joel, uh, this is where theology is really going to shape the approach. We're all Calvinists. <laughs> so we believe that it's just the preached word that saves. In fact, you, Joel, you just preached that it's not our efforts, but it's God's gospel that saves. <laughs> Sorry. It was like, I realized I had so much egg on my face because here I am. I'm teaching what God's word says. And then I'm going to, to, to Zoe going, hey, man, maybe we should essentially abandon what God's word says and use a gimmick. And, and what Zoe graciously reminded me of is there is no biblical example of somebody using a gimmick in order to draw a crowd, they just preach the word. And if you want to say, well, that's not effective, well, then you're going to have to tell that to Jesus, Jonah, the apostles, you know, uh, Paul, anyone who did all the prophets, they just didn't use gimmicks. So I, I have you ever, you know, have you ever wrestled with that theologically? And what's your approach when you go out street preaching? Um, yeah, it's funny. The thing is, I love Ray Comfort. I love the Living Waters people. And um, of course, we have different apologetic methodologies. And I actually, I was with uh, Ray about a year ago. They were doing some uh, videoing for um, an online school that they're going to be doing. And as much as I differ from his apologetic methodology, I said, I said to Ray, and it was heartfelt. I said, the more that I see other people on the streets, the more that I think that you have an element of doing it better or doing it more right than a lot of my brothers that are on the street, because he actually loves the lost. And if you love the lost, you can get away, I think, with a lot more. Now, I, I don't agree with what I would call the bait and switch stuff. But um, one thing that I love what Ray says, he says, I love the way I do it better than the way you don't. So, um, right. you know, I think that the gospel is sufficient. And the thing is, as Reformed people as well, we know that the salvation of the person is not up to us. What a burden it would be if we had to go out in the street and that our preaching was a determining factor of whether the person be saved or not. Now, God will use that for his good, but it's not up to us whether a person is saved. So when I go out on the street, you know, of course, we pray that souls will be saved. But God might be saying, you know, no, I'm sending you out there to fatten the goats for the slaughter. Because as Reformed people, we understand that according to the Bible, there are two types of people when it comes to their eternal destiny. There are sheep who will end up in heaven and there are goats who will end up in hell. But one thing that Scripture never says is that goats become sheep. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So when we go out on the street, we're not out there trying to trick goats into becoming sheep. We're not trying to get the attention of goats. We're out there giving them sheep food. And what is sheep food? The power of God into salvation is the gospel. And that's what we need to do. And I think that a lot of people who are presuppositious, and people can watch our first two shows about that, are duped. You know, before, as an evidential, people are using evidences to try and convince people that God exists. And then presuppositious are trying to use philosophy to try and convince people that God exists, rather than saying, no, this is what you need to do to be saved. This is what you need to be saved. And the analogy that I, I use, I say, let's say that um, you are talking with an unbeliever and you're talking about, you know, evidences for six hours or even philosophy for six hours. And then, you know, your wife comes up to that same person and says, look, I know that you know that God exists. If you want to know how to be saved, if you want to know how to be made right with God, you come and talk to me. Now, that person experiences tragedy in their life the next day. Who are they coming to? Are they coming to the person, you know, who had that trivia question, you know, who's trying to uh, get them to listen to this argument or the person says, look, I know that you know that this is the case and I love you enough to tell you that. The problem is a lot of Christians don't like the response that they get when people confront them in that way. And that's why I tell people we need to, to do it with love. And um, I love what Doug Wilson said about it. I heard in one of his sermons, he said that if you're talking to an unbeliever and at any point someone comes into that conversation and it does not look like you want them to be saved, you're probably doing it wrong. And I think that as I was philosophizing, developing this argument for the street, that I think there's a lot of times that people could have entered into my conversations and it didn't look like that. And I think that was sin on my part. I thank, I thank the Lord that he has spared me mostly from that. And um, a lot of the videos of mine that show up on YouTube are just, you know, three minute clips. They don't show the other hour where I end up sharing the gospel with the person and he gives me a hug. But we have to be um, 
cognizant that it's it's uh, the Holy Spirit that saves through the power of the gospel. And that's what we need to do when we're on the street. And I had a fellow contact me just recently. I, I think he posted something on Facebook. He wanted somebody to talk to about open air preaching. He'd never gone before. And he shared with me that he's preached in church many times, but he thought that to go on the street, he had to say something different. I said, absolutely not. I said, go out and say on the streets what you say in church. Now, I want to differentiate, too, though, is that I don't think I'm really an open-air preacher. I'm more of an open-air teacher. So I try and teach truths about Christianity. I'm not the fire and brimstone biblical expositor. But there is a place for expositing the Bible on the streets, and that's more of what the preacher does. Mm. And I'm saying that, like, the very first time that I did it um, at the um, Super Bowl in Indianapolis, I had not done a lot of open-air preaching. I just opened my Bible and started reading. Mm. And God's word does not return void. And that's what I would encourage people who are reluctant to. First of all, you need permission from your local church. You know, I don't believe in the nomads. But if you get the permission and, and you're uncomfortable, just go out there and read scripture to people. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, we I think we have to be careful, too. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because um, on my own podcast, I'll do a lot of... Um, conversations with atheists and um i mean may, maybe not a lot but I, i'll do them and the comments that i'll get from atheists on those videos will be like uh joel's very arrogant and um and and here's the thing maybe i am arrogant so when someone says that to me i don't just brush it off and go oh i'm not arrogant because that would be quite honestly that would be pretty arrogant to just assume that I'm not, that I'm not without sin. I think about David, when David had a man following him, kicking up dust and, and throwing things at him, David's reaction was not to kill the guy, even though David could have as, as the, uh, the king, but he thought maybe God has sent this man to humble me. And so I try to keep that in mind. But at the same time, sometimes when I'm being accused of being arrogant, it's just simply because I take God's word at face value, not the claims of the unbeliever. And I just don't compromise on what the Bible says, and and not in not in any kind of an arrogant way, as though uh, you know I'm this I've got this great fortitude or something like that. But just I'm not smart enough to figure out a better way. God's word is necessarily true, and as long as I'm trusting in God's word, I I can't be wrong about that. I can be wrong about a million other things in my life, but I can't be wrong when it comes to trusting in God's word. And sometimes that comes off as arrogant, even though. If you ask me, I think that's a lot more humble and a lot more safe. What do you think? I think one of the things I said to you very early on is that I have a lot to learn from you as far as your demeanor with unbelievers. But um, I, like, I like what you say about arrogance as well, is that there is a danger of being arrogant, but being right and knowing it looks a lot like arrogance. When it's not arrogance at all, right, it's just right. being right and knowing that you're right. And the very uh, interesting thing about that is that when people accuse you of arrogance, then they believe they're right and they know it. And, you know, it's funny that a lot of times that people bring an objection to you, um, the thing that they object is the thing that's most prevalent in their own lives. And so when they see arrogance in you, it's very often a very arrogant thing that they're, they're saying about you in calling you arrogant. And a lot of times it's just, you know, they say that you're arrogant because they don't like the truth that, that you're uh, confidently giving to them. So they have to say it's arrogant. That's I get that so often when people cannot refute the argument, then they turn and attack me. But, you know, thankfully, the Lord has blessed me with thick skin. I'm on the street often. And if you haven't heard it yet, I'm sure that you will. That when I'm um, talking with an unbeliever and at the end of that discussion, they'll say, you have maybe more of an atheist today. And hmm. so they can't refute the argument. So now they try to hurt me. And then I turn around and I say, you know, that's exactly what the Bible says. Hmm. The words of Jesus Christ, these words are going to be to some the odor of life unto life and to, uh, to others the odor of death unto death. Right. And that's not up to me. And if these words today are the order of death unto death unto you, this could be the worst day of your life. And that's why I say to people, I say that, and I've done it a number of times when I'm on the street. And, you know, people look at me mockingly for street preaching. I say, do me a favor, plug your ears, walk away, because this could be the worst day of your life because I'm giving you a lot of truth today. Yeah. And people are sent, there are degrees of hell. And it's worse for people who are heard more truth than rejected. And I say, I'm here giving you a lot of truth today. So if you die unrepentant, this could be the worst day of your life. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, when you're very serious about, you know, what you're saying, they might turn and attack you for it. You know, they might say that you're arrogant. They might say you may be more of an atheist. But, you know, we have to and people ask me, how do I keep my cool with people like that? It's the, the thing that helps me most is recognizing that except for the grace of God, that's me. 
Right. And I know this is our third show now, so I have to remember the, the kind of things that we talked about. But one thing that I, I used to say to people, because I was a factory worker, and I like joking around, around with my uh, fellow workers. But So I took that onto the street, expecting that people would give me the benefit of the doubt. So I used to say to people, you know, if I wasn't a believer, I, I'd be arguing just like you, except a little bit better. <laughs> and I don't say that anymore because, you know, people took that wrong. They, you know, just a fun shot of mine. But no, I tell them that if I wasn't a believer, I'd be arguing just like you. And I tried to love them. And hopefully people have seen the transition over the years where it's not so much a philosophical or evidential argument. I just tried to go out there and make Christ sweet to them. You know, because uh, the analogy I, I give is that, you know, imagine that we had the cure for a, a terrible disease. And, you know, how... How terrible would it be for us not to go out and share that cure with people? And that, that's what I tell people. You know, I tell people their condition. I tell them the cure. And I say, look, I am just the messenger. This is the cure. And if you don't want this cure, I fear for your soul. Right, right. Yeah, well, um, I did share this in uh, a, a couple of the different channels on Facebook. But I might as well share it with our listeners now. Um, that first night that we went out, this is when I was off the stool. Someone else was preaching and I was handing out gospel tracts and a girl came up and I don't know that she, sorry, I don't know that she had been listening to a, a word that we had said. She just came up to us. She was with her fiance and they were out for all I know. They were out, you know, it was Mardi Gras. So they were out probably hitting up the bars. I, I don't know where they were going, but she came up and just simply asked, okay, where should I start reading in the Bible? If I want to start getting into the Bible, and, you know, in, in my head, I, all these answers start flooding into my mind. But I was I was uh, uh, out there sort of tag teaming with this other brother named Eric. And so I asked her, I said, well, why do you want to get into, you know, reading this, the scriptures? What's bringing this question on? And, you know, she started to tell us and, and maybe didn't articulate it uh, super well or, or theologically, but basically she just wanted to get to know God. She had, she had a desire to get to know God. And it, it became so clear that this was a girl who the, whom the Holy Spirit had been working on. She saw that there were men standing out in the street with Bibles preaching the gospel. I don't know that she heard a single word that she said, but something in her and, or something I should say external to her, I believe it was the Lord led her to us. And, and it was the Holy Spirit leading the thirsty girl to the, the, the living water, the well of living water. And we had a, a, a conversation. Um, I, Eric and I sort of did a good cop, bad cop thing where I was, uh, uh, explaining to her how to receive Christ, how to be saved, um, how to repent and, and believe. And then Eric would come in and go, now listen, this is no, light matter. This is, you're going to take up your cross. And this is something uh, you're going to, a lot of people come to Jesus because they think he's going to make their life better. Your life might not get better. You know, this is going to be a lifelong commitment. You might lose friendships over this. You might lose family members. You're going to have to turn from your sin. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow. And, and you know what, Sai, there was no turning this girl away from Jesus. She wanted Jesus. And so Eric, Eric was was putting all these obstacles in her way, and she just and we would just ask her, "Does that you know? Do you still want to receive Christ?" And she said, "Yes, I do. Yes, I do." So we prayed together, and I and I told her, I said, "Look, there is nothing in this prayer that is going to be magical. There are no words that you need to say." And and side between you and me, I think that girl was a Christian before we ever started praying, because you know she she had she was expressing faith in Christ. And, and I, I gave her a little bit of uh, coaching on what to say in the prayer, but, but only insofar as you're going to be repenting and you're going to be believing in Christ. And so I prayed and then I, I handed it over to her and I said, you know, um, you can, you can pray what's on your heart right now to, to the Lord. And she prayed and brother, it was one of the sweetest moments I've ever had as a, as a pastor or an evangelist or apologist. But she just, with tears streaming down, she, the, the, she gave her heart to Jesus Christ and received him as Savior and Lord. And it was like a, a daughter coming home. And it was just so incredibly beautiful. <laughs> we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're hugging it. I'm not much of a hugger. I gave her a, a nice Christian side hug afterwards. <laughs> but it was just this beautiful moment. And, um, uh, of course, it's always a matter of, okay, well, we'll see. 
we'll see what the Lord does. But it was just this really sweet moment. And we didn't have a moment like that the second night. And so uh, I was very, very grateful to the Lord that he let me experience that the first night. Not because I would doubt the validity of street preaching because it wasn't quote unquote effective. But, you know, as you say, when it comes to how many people we lead to Christ through our preaching, through our apologetic, well, we lead them all to Christ. What God does to them there, you know, at the cross, that's that's really up to the Lord. But it was so nice to see God bring one of his daughters home. At least at least that's what it appeared that we witnessed that night. Well, that that indeed is a real blessing, brother. And God gifted you with that to see, you know, the power of the gospel, because that will hopefully uh, fashion how you uh, do street evangelism in the future. Uh, I want to share with you a, a story because I, I thought about it when you're talking about, you know, leading people in a prayer and saying that this does not change anything. This does not mean that you're saved. And um, it was my friend, Mike Stockwell. And, um, you know, I have a story with him and uh, Scott Smith, actually. Um, um, we were at a campus, I think it was Bloomsburg. And um, Mike was talking to a bunch of students and the philosophy professor came out and said, there is no certainty. And Mike said, are you certain about that? And then the philosophy professor turned around and said, I'm going to go mark some papers. And Scott Smith said to Mike, he says, you got to teach me more about that. So, uh, I don't know how presuppositional he is now, but um, that was a story about uh, Mike Stockwell and Scott Smith. But the, the story that, uh, reminded, that I was reminded of when you were talking about Mike Stockwell, he said, can you imagine that a man commits adultery on his wife and he's repentant and he goes back to his wife, but he brings you with him and you knock on the door and the wife comes to the door and you say, okay, now say this, honey, I'm really sorry for what I did. Honey, I'm really sorry for what I did. I know that I was unfaithful and that was wrong, you know, and then it repeats after the say, would that not be absurd? How sincere would the wife think that that apology is if she's just repeating the words that you're giving that person? If that person is truly repentant to his wife for his adultery, that person knows what to say. And another thing that you brought up is that a lot of times, and I think it's one of my failings as well, we go out in the street, we don't expect results. We don't expect the gospel to be as effective as it was in biblical times. And um, I think that ha happens often, even with any of our prayers, that we don't expect results. And I, I think of the story, and I know I, I tell a lot of stories, but it's a town that was ravaged by drought. And people were losing their livelihood, they were losing, losing their jobs, crops were dying. And then a local church decided to have a prayer service for rain. And the whole community was showing up to this church, to this prayer service for rain. And the pastor got up in the pulpit and he looked out at the congregation. He says, there's a problem here. He said, where are your umbrellas? And a lot of times that's what happened, you know, that that we pray to God for something and don't expect results. And I remember a story that was closer to home. I was attending a church and the pastor of the church, he had to go speak at a conference later that week, but he was developing a cold. And he asked the congregation to pray for his cold so that he could do this conference. And the next week I ran into his wife and I said, so how did the conference go? How was his cold? She goes, oh, it went great. I guess he didn't have it that bad. And I'm thinking wait a minute, didn't we pray for him last week? I mean, so when God answers prayers, we'd want to attribute it to something else. So, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing that, that God showed you, that he does answer prayer. He's the same God of the Old New Testament. And that was a beautiful thing. I mean, you saw results that many open-air preachers never see in their entire lifetimes. And, you know, even biblical prophets don't see. And so that was that was a real blessing God gave you. And it warmed my heart, even when you're um, recounting it now. I mean, tears were starting to well up, so... It's beautiful, brother. Yeah, uh, it 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 always is. It it is, it is a miracle. It's a total miracle. All glory goes to to Christ. All glory goes to God. And and I like what you said. It's the same God in the Old and New Testament. And that's really our topic today. I mean, I love I I I love talking with you about this because um you know you're you're an older brother in the faith. You're, you're someone who's got experience in in this regard. And um. You know, it's it's just so much fun to share these stories. But one of the objections that we do get, um, you know, out there, whether it's on the street or whether it's, uh, you know, internet atheists or, or just, um, you know, sort of one of these ideas that's sort of out there in the zeitgeist in the culture is that the God of the Old Testament is somehow immoral or somehow even different from the God of the New Testament. And what I thought Brother, I thought we could unpack this um, this claim that the God of the Old Testament is immoral. And something came up as you and I were discussing prior to hitting record, and that is the approach of how to handle specific biblical texts with the unbeliever. So 
our our audience here, I'm assuming that our audience is we've only been doing this for a few weeks now, but I'm assuming that our audience is primarily Christians um who want to sharpen their apologetic, but we're we're sort of speaking through them to the uh, the unbelievers that they're going to be encountering. So um what we want to do is we want to equip them to have those conversations. And that means that we need to to address our methodology as well as the answers that we're going to be giving. So why don't we just open this up, brother? Uh, how do how do we address this claim that the God of the Old Testament is immoral? Well, it's kind of a repetition of we did what we did in the last show about the problem of evil is that the unbeliever has actually no standard to define what is immoral and what is not immoral. And um, so I might lay that out with them in the conversation, but I would say, well, give me an example. And then they might cite a biblical example. And one thing that I say that I get criticized very often is I don't do Bible studies with unbelievers. I might explain, you know, what scripture is saying there, but I will not argue the truth of it with them. But uh, when they give me a biblical example, they say, well, what about rape? And I say to them, well, what's wrong with that? And the look that you that you get from these people is, is astonishing because they don't know what you're saying. Because when I say what's wrong with rape, I'm not saying that I approve of rape. I actually have an absolute moral standard that says rape is wrong. But when I say what's wrong with rape, I'm asking what's wrong with rape according to your worldview. And when I engage unbelievers, what I try to do is hold up a mirror. I show that every one of their objections borrows from the God of the Bible. They can't have a problem with morality unless they have an absolute standard of morality, which which they cannot have without God. So they'll bring up a specific thing like slavery. What's wrong with slavery? You know, and and the unbeliever, what they often, and like I say, I don't philosophize with them very often, but the unbeliever will try and argue that I'm an animal, that I'm an evolved animal. And I say, well, do you have any pets? Yes. You own pets? Yeah. So you don't have a problem with owning animals. So you don't have a problem with slavery. And then I might, you know, liken uh, modern day, um, you know, the prison system. In a way, that's slavery. These people cannot leave. They're owned by the state. And, you know, so I just try to hold the mirror up that it's actually them that have no objection to the very thing that they level at us. But the example of, of slavery, for instance, you know, they say, what about slavery in the Bible? And I'll say, well, are you talking about Roman slavery, Egyptian slavery, Hebrew slavery, or are you talking about modern slavery? And they look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because they have no idea, because there are some types of slavery in Scripture, at least one type of Hebrew slavery, that was condoned in Scripture. But that's a far cry from the modern slavery that people are talking about today. Now, I might explain that on the street, but I don't need to because I actually borrowing from God to have that objection. But in Exodus 21, 16, it talks about man stealing. And that was a, a crime punishable by death. And that's often the modern slavery that people are talking about. They say, what about slavery in the Bible? Well, you're talking about modern slavery. Look at Exodus 21, 16. The punishment for that was death. But when you'll see when you're on the street, and I'm sure, you know, being on the street, you'll experience it as well is that when people level these objections, they're not trying to disprove Christianity. They're trying to make themselves feel better, rejecting the God that they know exists. Wow. So when they bring up an argument of slavery, you can reconcile that with them. You can explain all the different types of slavery, and then they'll probably go on to something else, and they'll distort another passage. But what I like to do is I like to turn the tables on them. And so um, the example of slavery, people say, well, what about slavery in the Bible? And that, you know, I might go through the different types, and I'll say, but let me tell you a story about biblical slavery. And I heard, I heard Joel Beakey say this in a sermon, and he got it from another famous preacher. Those people watching might know um, the sermon is from. I don't recall what it was from. But he was telling a story about a very beautiful slave down at the, t- at the time of the slave trade. And she was on the auction block, and um, she was being auctioned off. And in the crowd, uh, people auctioning for this beautiful slave were, were two young men. And they were telling each other, the disgusting things that they were going to do with this woman if they won the auction. And there's an older man standing behind them, and he heard what these two young men were saying, mm. and he was disgusted as well. So he raised his hand and he said, I bid twice of what either of these two men bid, and he won the auction. So he went to this beautiful slave girl, and she thought, you know, she knew she was beautiful, and she thought this was a disgusting man, just like those two young men. Right. So she was fighting with him. She was clawing at him, spitting at him. She didn't understand his language. She didn't know what was going on. But he was actually bringing her to the office to give her her freedom. So he's dragging her to this office, and she's fighting the whole way. And she gets he gets her to this office and sits her down. And the fellow who's doing the paperwork to give her her, her freedom understands her language. And she sa- he says to her, what are you doing? This man has purchased your freedom. 
And she composed herself and she says, I have just one question for this man. Can I be his slave? And I say, that is biblical slavery, that we were slaves to sin and now we're voluntary slaves to righteousness. And then the expression that you get when you're on the street and you're accounting that story, people just brought up this objection to slavery, which isn't a real objection because they know that we are sane people and that we you know, uh, reject the oppression of individuals. Of course we, we, we reject that. But then you recount a story like that and say, that's biblical slavery. And I've seen it before where the crowd starts to dissipate because of conviction. And I'm thankful for that. So what I try to do when I'm on the street is take these objections, turn them around and, and expose in their hearts why they really have this objection and how it's not a real objection at all. You're muted, brother. Oh, thank you, thank you. So that's that's incredibly helpful. Um, when, when you say that that's biblical slavery, okay, help me out here then. Is that, is what you just described, are you saying that that is the kind of slavery that is condoned in the Old Testament? Or are you saying that is analogous to our relationship with God, where God sets us free from our sin, and God is so gracious and kind to us that we then, we're like that slave girl, where we then say, we turn around and we say, okay, I recognize the incredible grace, the the mercy, the um, kindness of this God I want to be this God's slave. I will do anything for and for someone this merciful and kind who set me free from my sin. Which one of those do you mean by that? Well, clearly it's not the first one. Clearly the, the first one, you know, is um, often entered into voluntarily or it was um, people that were captives and rather than being killed, they were, they were um, put into slavery. So it's not that kind, but I say the overall concept of slavery is one of, of voluntary slavery to God. And I would say that yeah, there is a type of slavery that was condoned in scripture. But again, you know, that's the type of thing on the streets. I, you know, I say, I don't, I don't do Bible studies with unbelievers. And what people often give me far too much credit. I'm a boiler operator by trade. And we were talking about this a little bit before um, we went live. But people send me questions about certain biblical texts, and I say, what does your pastor say about that? And they say, well, I don't go to church. I say, well, that's your problem. I mean, you're asking these deep theological uh, questions to a, a boiler operator. Now, I, I think I have an expertise in apologetics and reformed theology, but you know, the, the finer points of Christendom, you need to talk to your pastor about that. And a lot of people become internet Christians. They don't go to church and they go to a podcast and, and then you become their pastor. And I am simply not qualified for that. So a lot of times I'll hear these objections on the street and I'll say, that's a really good question. You know, and even if it's an unbeliever, I say, you come to our church on, on Wednesday night, we have a Bible study, you know, come in and go ahead and ask that question. That's the type of question that Christians ask, but that is not your problem. You're, that is not your problem. Your problem is that if you die tonight, you can face the God that you know exists. Yeah. You know, so um, I might explain it to some degree, but I think a lot of times when you do explain it to the, the finest points, you're often being duped by them. And this is the question that I have, have for people who are out the street explaining these things. How often has a person says, well, you're right. I want to become a Christian now. Yeah. Yeah, that, they, that, they just don't do that. It's this and then this. So, and, and the thing is, I don't even think it's a problem with answering that question. My friend Corey McKenna in Canada, I think he does it wonderfully. He prefaces his answer with, you know, I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to tell you how a Christian will reconcile that verse. He's a pastor. You know, he knows how we reconcile it. Mm -hmm. and, and he'll say, I'm going to tell you how we do that, but it's probably not going to make a difference because you love your sin. And you're not asking this question to get an answer. You're asking this question to try and trip me up so you can feel better in your unbelief. But look, this is how we answer the question. And they might explain the different types of slavery or, you know, whatever their objection is, they might explain it to them what the Greek is and what the Hebrew is. And then what are they going to say? Well, what about this one? And I said, sir, that's exactly, or man, that's, that's exactly what I said you would do because that is not your problem. Mm. And then hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, he'll, he'll work in their hearts and um, he'll use that to save them. So, one of the, what you mentioned, Sai, is one of those sayings that you are famous for saying. You, you say, uh, I don't have Bible studies with unbelievers. And a, correct me if I'm wrong, but a common response to that is, oh, that's just a cop-out. There is no answer. Sai knows it. Or he's just avoiding the question. You know, why don't you give me the answer? And there is this expectation, or, or at least a, a perceived expectation that, look, you owe me an answer here. And if you don't give me an answer, you're just avoiding the question. What, 
maybe could you just make it very explicit? Why don't you, or why do you say, I don't have Bible studies with unbelievers? The reason that I say that, and I say, it's not like I will not explain scripture to people, but the reason that I say that is I will not allow them to be the judge over scripture. If they want to have an argue, argument with me to decide whether or not that text is true, I will not do that with them. But I'll say, look, if you want to explain how, if you want me to explain how this makes sense from a Christian standpoint, I'll be happy to do that. But I will not elevate you to the position of judge over the word of God because God is the judge. Just like I don't argue for the existence of God, I start with the existence of God and I expose the absurdity of those people who would reject it. And that's the same thing that I do with scripture. I will not put them as judge over the word of God because let's say you reconcile that. Let's say you resolve it for them and they say, okay, that makes sense now. It makes sense to them so the word of God is true or valid because they say so. I said, that's not the God I believe in and that's not the word of God I believe in. The word of God I believe in is true whether or not the person acknowledges it. So I'll say, this is the case. And like I say, I might even, even if they're still ob objecting to me, I might explain it to them with the preface that it won't make a difference. And that the reason that they're having a, an objection is because they actually are boring from the God that they know exists. So that's why I say to them, well, for instance, slavery. Why is slavery wrong in your worldview? You have a problem with slavery. I get that. So do I. I have a problem with the slavery you're talking about, but I have a, an absolute moral standard by which I can say it's wrong. Why do you say it's wrong? And like I said, try and hopefully by the grace of God, have them examine themselves and see that their very objection to the God of the Bible, they borrow from him, rather than elevating them to the position of judge over the God of the Bible or judge over his word. And yeah, you know, I know I say that and a lot of Christians misunderstand me. They say, well, Christian, would, uh, Jesus would have a, a Bible study with the unbeliever. I say, no, he wouldn't. He would tell them what the Bible says and explain that this is the truth, but he would not argue the truth of it with them. Now, if that, if they liken that to a Bible study, fine. In that instance, I will do a Bible study, but I will not argue the truth of God's word with an unbeliever. I will not elevate them to the position of judge. Okay. And you know, I'm thinking of those times when Jesus references scripture and he says, um, for example, um, you know, how can the Messiah be both David's Lord and his son? And he's speaking to Jewish believers, so to speak, in the sense that they believed the, the law and the prophets were the word of God. At least they professed to whether or not they had an actual faith in that God, in the one true God. They, so Jesus is appealing to what they claim to believe anyway. And, and I actually say, I see that being analogous to what you're saying when you say, well, you know, you, Mr. Atheist, you, Miss Unbeliever, you, you believe that we're animals and you have a pet and you're obviously therefore okay with owning animals. So you're appealing to something that they believe to, to show them there really is no objection here. And the problem is not argument. The problem is not evidence. The problem is not exegesis. The problem is sin. And the solution is repentance. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And what I want to differentiate as well is that you will run into a lot of people on the street. And sometimes the biggest opposition we get is from people who profess to be Christians. You know, and, and the hardest thing is that you got to get them unconverted before you can get them converted. But, you know, we ask that person, you profess to be a Christian, what is your ultimate authority? And if their ultimate authority is scripture, then it is a Bible study. And then you show how what they believe is inconsistent with what the Bible says. Right. But then they're not rejecting the Bible as their ultimate authority, I mean, unless they you know, totally reject the faith because they see how it's inconsistent with what the Bible actually says. But then it becomes a Bible study. So if the person's ultimate authority is scripture, then I will go to scripture and I'll show how scripture contradicts what they believe. Okay. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, this approach then, Sai, is this something that you can use? Um, you know, sometimes when we talk about presuppositional apologetics or um, covenantal apologetics, whatever we want to call it, um, sometimes the answers, and, and you pointed this out to me, sometimes the answers all end up sounding pretty similar. You know, so is this the kind of response that you could give it about slavery. You could give it about rape. You could also give it about the the command that God gave to Joshua and the Israelites, for example, to wipe out the Canaanites, to wipe out the people of Jericho. You know, how do you handle that? How do you handle um, just taking that as a specific example? Someone says, well, the God in the Old Testament, God in the Old Testament commanded Israel 
to wipe out the Canaanites? Because I've seen so many different responses to that. Well, no, he didn't really. There's no record of that actually happening. Um, you know, Jericho was more like a military outpost, less like a city. There probably were no kids there, things like that. How do you handle that example in particular, if you don't mind me asking here? Yeah, that's no problem. Um, uh, what I say to people in that circumstance, I say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with God wiping out a whole nation? What's wrong with that? Hmm. And then, of course, they must appeal to a standard that they must borrow from God. And, you know, like I might get into the details of a, of a specific thing in Scripture with them, but very often I don't. I don't have to. I just expose the fact that that's not the real objection. I say, what's wrong with that? I say, you are borrowing from the God of the Bible to say that um, slaughtering a, a whole nation is wrong. Now, God has, a, as we talked about in the last show, God has a morally sufficient reason for the things that he commands in Scripture. Right. And, and that's the kind of thing that as Christians we discuss in Bible studies. What people don't understand, especially unbelievers, is they don't understand the condition of mankind. God would have every right to slaughter everyone. That's right. So, you know, and, and then people say, well, the, the God of the Old Testament was a real meanie. And I often say to them, stick around. <laughs> I mean, if you think that was bad, you know, what? wait, what's going to happen to you if you die unrepentant? Yeah. But, and that's why it's a Reformed apologetic as well, because people have no idea of our own condition before God. So they might bring up an objection like that, and I might share a story like this. And I'll say, imagine that there was a governor who had a son, and a hundred people conspired to murder that man's son. And he succeeded, and, and they succeeded, and they were all caught, and they were all put on death row. And the governor comes by and pardons one of them. And that person says, well, it's so unfair that, you know, you've pardoned me, and you haven't pardoned the other 99. What an unfair governor you are. Instead of saying, oh, what a, what a beautiful thing that the governor condescended to spare even one, because they're all murderers in the governor's eyes. And it would be absurd to say how unfair it would be for the governor to have done that when he would have every right to kill all of them. And that is my position as a Christian. I might explain why it was right for the Canaanites to be killed, but I would just as soon be saying it's right for me to be killed. You know, and I don't know if we talked about it. I think we did talk about it in the last show where, you know, I was witnessing at, at a Super Bowl. And yeah, I, I did talk about it. And, um, and the homosexual uh, fellow came up to me and says, how, how come you don't have a sign like the Westboro, Westboro Baptist people? And I said, because apart from the grace of God, he hates me too. I'm no better than you. I'm better off. And people have to, to recognize that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same God, that he was righteous and good in what he did. And if you want fairness from God, you better be very careful when you ask that question. Because if God was fair, he'd wipe us all out. But in his mercy and in his view of fairness, he sent his son to die for people like you and me. And you need to repent and become part of that and join me in, in condemning atrocities. Because when you see atrocities in the world, you can't even call them atrocious unless you borrow from the God of the Bible, the God that you know exists. You need to join me as a Christian and condemn what's going on. Yeah. And that's how I might answer something like that on the street. Now, that, that's really good. And... You know, we just, we approach the question so much differently as believers because I trust my father. I trust my father. I know, I know what God has, has done for me. I, I don't, Sai, I don't understand the, the complete depths of my own sin. I, I'm sure that if God were to peel back all the layers of my own self-deception and my own, you know, delusion, and if God were to truly show me how sinful I actually am, me, even today, as a believer, even washed by the blood of the Lamb, the sin that remains, if God showed me really what my sin looks like to Him, I, I would, I would collapse on the floor in tears. I'd probably throw up. It's, it's awful. And, you know the the uh, the statement that you made. I just think is is very helpful for us to remember. I'm no better than you. I'm no better than you. I'm just better off. And um, and I it's 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 great to remember that. And it's great to tackle these questions as believers because we know that God is good. And so if we could just make something very explicit, then sigh. Is it possible when people say, oh, the, the God of the Bible is immoral, is it possible for God to be immoral? Is that is that a possibility? 
No, God is a standard of morality, so that that would be impossible. But one thing you said uh, I thought was very profound is that um, that if you knew the extent of your wickedness, you would collapse. And that's exactly, I think it's in Psalm 130. If, if God would show us the extent of our sin, who could stand? And that's why I encourage Christians not to pray and ask God to reveal to them the extent of their iniquities. Because I think it would not, if you would collapse, I think it would kill you instantly. Wow. And um, I, I remember a, um, a pastor's wife, I was talking to her about this one time, and she knew a fellow who constantly prayed to God to show him the extent of his sin. And the guy went mad. And she believes that to some extent God answered that prayer. So one thing I pray, I say, Lord, please reveal to me more of my sinfulness that I can, that I can serve you better. I also thank him for not revealing to me the extent of his greatness. Because just the extent of God's greatness in light of my sinfulness, that would kill me too. So when I pray to God, I say, Lord God, reveal to me more of my sinfulness and more of, my, more of your greatness such that I can serve you better. But not to the extent that it would crush me unless that be your will. Amen. Because it might be his will to do just that. So, um, you know, but I think that people would be very careful when they pray to God because we have no idea how sinful we are in light of God's greatness and how great he is in light of our sinfulness. Yeah, man. So good to keep in mind. And when we keep this in mind, you know, whether you are out on the street, whether you're having a conversation like the one you had with Matt Hunt, uh, where it's, you know, via YouTube or, um, you know, the conversations that I've had recently with um, Travis Pangburn or your friendly neighborhood atheist, or, or you're speaking with your Roman Catholic or your nominal Christian friend or family member. If you keep in mind that I am more sinful than I even know, and I don't deserve any any of the grace that God has given, I, I don't des- not only do I not deserve it, I deserve the exact opposite. I'm not neutral before God. I'm terrible before God. How could we not have love for the unbeliever and compassion? And, and that will make us, that attitude will make us more godly, more pious, more Christ-like. Because, you know, that example that you mentioned about a hundred people conspiring to kill, to, to, to kill uh, the son and God spares one of them. Um, it, I mean, it totally reminds me of Romans nine. And, uh, and this was a passage that I was referencing with my son, Jacob, uh, my firstborn. He was asking why God doesn't just save everybody. You know, it's the question that, um, that we all ask. And what the way God, uh, answers it, he, he says it, in, he says it to Moses. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then Paul, the apostle in that very same passage says, um, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And uh, I like the way John Frame phrases uh, phrases it. He says, "Shut up," he explained. <laughs> you know? like, in other words, uh, trust God. And you know, and if God explains it to you sometime, that's His prerogative. And if not, He's good. He's the Potter. You're the clay. And that doesn't mean He wants you to not use your mind, but that that is a mind that is submitted to Jesus Christ. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, you know, there can never be, and brother, this is something I I learned from you. You can't, this is one of the reasons why you can never be a former Christian. This, I tell you, brother, this has really stuck with me because how could you, if you've surrendered your thinking to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, how could you ever reason your way out of that position, right? Exactly, and that's exactly what script, Scripture says. Those who are uh, those who left us were never among us. And of course, you know these type of uh, arguments that I give are just you know they're reflected in Scripture. And that's what I tell people when they come to me and listen to my argumentation. I say, don't listen to it with an open mind. Listen to it with an open book, and ask me to justify everything that I say with Scripture. And if I can't, forget it, toss it out. But uh, you know, one thing that we have to keep in mind when we're out, when we're out in the street is the greatness of God. And I think when you under when you understand that and and you know don't deviate that from on the street on the street you know I think that the unbeliever can't help but see that so I don't focus on the sinfulness of man and maybe another show we could talk about that but when when I even talk about the sinfulness of people I focus on the greatness and the glory of God and I think 
that's what we need to do when we're out on the street. And, and we, we even talked about it at the, before the show. You, you said that something was awesome. And I said, that's a mighty big word to use for such a small thing. I said, we need to reserve that word for God. And like I was born and raised in a Christian home. And there, you know, sometimes I say I regret not knowing what it's like to walk the earth as an unbeliever because I don't know what the people that I'm talking to are thinking. And then usually people who are saved later in life, they say, well, I was, wish I was born and raised in a Christian home so I would never have to experience what I experienced. But one thing that being born and raised in a Christian home where Jesus' love has lived and shown, it taught us a reverence for God. And so that's why things like that are, you know, are, are particularly, um, you know, hurtful when I hear, and, you know, I'm not even saying using the word awesome like that, but when I hear stuff like that, it, it grates on me knowing how great God is. And I know that some people use it innocently, but I'll give you an example. I say, let's say that um, you were adopted into a billionaire's home when you were very young, like three months old or whatever. You get used to the, the granite countertops. You get used to the silverware. You get used to the Ferrari in the garage. But let's say that you were uh, adopted into that home when you're 20 years old. You say, you see that Ferrari in the garage? No. And you're so excited about it. A lot of people who are, who are saved later in life have that type of excitement that sometimes I miss. But they'll also wear a T-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. They say, no, he's not. He is Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. See, they might be adopted into the house, might love the granite countertops, but they'll put their feet on the table. So no, you don't. Not in this house. Right. So I think there's a, you know, there's always the grass is greener on the other side. But one thing that growing up in a Christian home has taught me the reverence and the greatness of God. And I hope that that is reflected in my apologetic. You know, and I hope that, um, you know, when people are offended by what I say, that they're not offended by my character, but by the truth that they're confronted with. Yeah, uh, so, so good. And as apologists, evangelists, everyday Christians going about our lives and sharing the gospel and, and, you know, trying, trying to have a, a ready defense and to be ready with the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, you know, uh, a greater reverence for God is going to give us more, um, diligence, more, more love in our apologetic and, and, and you even see that in, in first Peter, I think, uh, first Peter three fifteen. The apologetic begins with sanctifying the Lord Jesus in our hearts, sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, and th and then it's a ready defense that is given in fear and reverence. And I looked up because um, I preached on that passage a few times, and the the word reverence can be taken to mean respect for the person that you're speaking with, um, but there's just as good of an argument you could make that it's reverence. For God, so Peter is saying you start with reverencing Jesus and sanctifying Jesus, and you end with reverencing and sanctifying Jesus. And the whole thing—it's all for the glory of Jesus. It's not for my glory. How smart I am! It's not to convince the unbeliever with with evidence and 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 things like that. It's it's reverence for Jesus. Amen. And sadly, most of the stuff that you see, you know, apologists on the street or even people teaching apologetics, is that they argue for the holiness and for the authority of Jesus Christ by giving it up. And scripture says, no, we're supposed to start with that. We're supposed to start with the holiness of God, you know, and end with it. And sadly, people say, no, let's discard that. Let's put them aside. And I'm going to argue with you to see whether or not Jesus is holy, whether or not he is Lord. And that's exact contradiction of what scripture says. We start with Jesus as Lord and Jesus' sheep will hear his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good to remember at all times. Certainly good to remember uh, as we're addressing this particular objection that we're talking about today, which again is, is the God of the Old Testament, who, by the way, in case it needs to be stated, there's only one God. There's not a, there's not a separate God in, in either Testament, but, um, is the God of the Old Testament, who we might say is the triune God, the true God who reveals himself in the Old Testament. Is he immoral? So if you've been watching, uh, if you've been listening via the podcast, um, Certainly hope that this was helpful to you. And by the way, if you're listening on the podcast, then you couldn't see that Brother Sai is wearing his Think Institute t-shirt. So just, uh, just, uh, there, there's a, there's a mental image for you there. But, um, brother, I, I always appreciate the opportunity to do this with you. I mean, I'm very honored and very grateful. And, um, and, and I know that it's been a, a benefit and a blessing to, uh, to, to folks who, 
have ears to hear as the Lord allows it. Um, I also want to just remind our listeners and our viewers that we do have a Patreon. If this work has been a blessing to you, then uh, we want to invite you to support the work, support the show. You can simply go to patreon.com slash answer anyone. So that's patreon.com slash answer anyone. And um, for example, this episode, we're going to post this um, one week from when we're recording it, but we're going to post it early for our, patri- our patrons. And so um, we've also... Um, We've also got a, uh, a Q&A that we're going to do. There's, there's going to be some bonus content, things like that. So if you enjoy the work and you want to get some of that bonus content, check out patreon.com slash answer anyone. And that'll be a, a blessing and an encouragement to us um, and uh, a way of supporting the work. Um, and you know what? Tell others about the show. Give this video a like. Give the Think Institute Network a, um, a, a subscribe, a subscription, and definitely Get more content from Psy by going to proofthatgodexists.org. Uh, that is a website that has immensely blessed me. Working your way through it, if you've never done so, it is hilarious and frustrating all at the same time because uh, it's an apologetic in and of itself, just working your way through that that argument. So, uh, brother, anything else to add before we close up? No, I think that's good. I'm, um, I think that what, what you'll discover as well is that I don't have a lot to say. When I started this ministry too, I thought, I don't have a lot to say, but I have a few things that I want to say to a lot of people. So some of this might be repetitive, but um, I'm looking forward to the next shows that we're going to do. And uh, hopefully that um, God can use even us to uh, bless some of the saints and even use even us in the lives of unbelievers that um, God, by his grace, might save them. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to answer anyone with Site 10 Brigincate. I'm Joel Sedicase, and on behalf, of, on behalf of both of us and the Think Institute, take care, God bless you, and um, keep preparing to sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord as you prepare to answer anyone.